Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. You know, as they were singing Great Are You, Lord, a minute ago, or as we were all singing Great Are You, Lord, a minute ago, it made me think so bad that I, w I wish so bad I could sing. Like I wish so, you have no idea how bad I wish I could sing. And we usually sit right there, and if y'all see, these, these are crowd mics, and they'll tell me, stop singing so loud because you're getting picked up in the crowd mic, and it, takes, it sounds terrible online. But here's what I know. The Lord hears my voice in a different way. Y'all get that? We can all sing. He hears us with the ability to sing. But I still wish so bad that I could sing. Uh, joyful noise. Well, what that song say? We pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. That's what we were doing this morning. And y'all, sometimes, because you can kind of see it if you're standing up here when y'all are, when we're singing, and the sound of everybody, a couple hundred people singing, like it's overwhelming because we are pouring out our praise. When the Holy Spirit is here and the Holy Spirit is moving and shaking and doing that thing he does, it is just the most beautiful thing. It really, really is. You know, I see Brittany back there doing her head like this because it is. So that was really, really great. I want to tell you one last thing before we jump in the message. Richard was talking about the Wednesday night. Uh, gathering where we're going to break bread together, we're going to eat together. And he says $7 a person, no more than 25 in a family. Family doesn't mean cousins and aunts and uncles and grandmamas and granddaddies. <laughs> we're talking about parents and children. I'm teasing. We are, though, going to meet on the other Wednesday nights as well, and we're going to walk through Philippians. But the breaking of the bread, the eating together, the fellowship, that's just going to be on that second Tuesday, excuse me, that second Wednesday of each month. So we really want you all to sign up for that and, and to come. It's going to be a great time. Now, today we are starting a new series in Acts, in the book of Acts, called Scattered, Broader, and Wider. And so we've been walking through verse by verse through Acts for several months now, and we broke, we've broken up the, the, the book, Luke's book. Luke wrote Acts. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. We've broken up Acts into several serieses, um, and we're starting today, we, we started Scattered, I don't know, um, probably six or eight weeks ago. And Scattered was, we saw at the beginning of chapter 8 of the book of Acts, we saw the church, we saw the believers scatter after Pentecost. They scattered out from Jerusalem into the, a little out of Judea and into Samaria. And they were scattering because they were being persecuted. And so we saw that. And what we're going to see now is we're going to see that that scattering begins to get broader and wider. God is opening it up a little broader, a little wider. The gospel begins to expand uh, in a much greater way and to a much larger audience. Now, now, the book of Acts, all about Jesus. Reality is the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of the Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Luke, as a, as a writer, Maybe thematically, if that's the right word to say. Luke is very concerned with the Holy Spirit. You see more about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke and in, in the book of Acts, big time. Very Holy Spirit driven. Very much about the acts of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. But in the book of Acts, and you see that all throughout the book of Acts, but also in Acts, as far as human beings go, as far as people go in the, in the story of the book of Acts, first several chapters, in fact, probably really the first 12 chapters of Acts, 
is really very much about Peter. Now, you may say, well, that's kind of odd because you've been talking about Paul for the last probably three weeks. Well, other than this little interlude that we were in in the, in the middle of Acts chapter 9 where we saw Saul slash Paul uh, on that Damascus road and he has this encounter with the risen Christ and he's saved. Uh, other than that, the first 12 chapters are very much about, about Peter. And so right after that, Luke jumps back to Peter. And I want to talk today a little bit about him and the role that he played in the early church. And then I want to uh, jump into a few verses late in chapter 9 of the book. So the message today, the name of the message is the indicators of a rocking personal ministry. What, are the, what does it look like to have a rocking personal ministry? And we're going to talk about some different indicators that we see there. So we're going to look at, we're going to take a little bit of a, Maybe a little bit of a look at a, a little bit of a biographical sketch of Peter, and I want you to see his heart. And I think you're probably going to see all of us probably are going to see little bits of of him and us, little bits of us in him. We're going to see an image of what just regular people are like. But I want you to see where Peter's coming from. I want you to see his. I want you to see his heart. I want you to see uh, the man that Jesus just poured into and shaped to be an incredible, ultimately an incredible Christian leader. So at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Andrew, Andrew and Peter were brothers. Andrew introduces his brother, Simon Peter, and you see Peter called Simon Barjona. You see him called Simon Peter. You see him called Peter. But but his brother is Andrew, and Andrew introduces uh, Simon Peter to Jesus. And the Bible says in John chapter 1 in verse 42, Bible says Jesus looked at him and said, Jesus looked at who? He looked at Peter. Now, the word that John chose to use for looked, it's not just he saw with his eyes. It's not just light being refracted off this bucket of cells into Peter's eyes and into his brain. It's way more than that. It's gazing. It's it's, they gave him a piercing look. And it's really saying that Jesus gazed right into uh, Peter's heart and Peter's soul, intimately knowing what and who he was and what and who he would become on the other side of the resurrection. So it's way more than just he saw this fisherman. So it says, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And that's English translated, right, which means Peter. In the Greek, that word is Petros, and that word is also rock. And so Jesus renames Simon. He meets him there. He says this. He renames him Simon. And for the next three years, the Apostle John in John's Gospel, it never, ever records Jesus calling Peter the rock. It never records him calling Peter, Peter, not one time. He calls him Simon or Simon Barjona. Y'all get that? Okay. But what the Lord did in that three years is he spent that time pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. He's pouring into his guys. And so the Lord spent that time getting Simon ready to grow into the name that he had given them when they met walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Three years later, fast forward three years, that first Easter morning, 
Jesus walks out of that tomb alive, the resurrection on that first Easter morning, and his best friend, I'm going to get back to this too, but his best friend, Simon Bar-Jonah, kind of began to be the rock. He needed Jesus to come out of that grave alive. Peter. Peter was a homeowner. Peter was a husband. Peter was a father. Peter was a brother. Peter was a fisherman. His DNA. Lots of good, some bad, and a whole bunch of kind of so-so in the middle. A bunch of different traits like me and you. Peter was bold, very bold. Peter was the leader of the apostles. Every list in any of the gospels of the apostles, Peter's name is first. He always stepped up, always stepped up. He is the only one that got out of the boat when Jesus is walking on the water. He's the only one that got out of the boat. You can say what you want. You can say, well, he sunk. Well, he's the only one that got out of the boat because he was bold. Peter was courageous. Peter was loyal. Effective leaders are always courageous. John chapter 18, it's the night of Jesus' arrest. Peter's the one that unholsters his pistol, right? That got not one even giggle. Peter's the one that pulled the sword out, y'all. Nobody else did. Now, he's going to defend Jesus, you know, which is kind of funny, but that's what he did because he's not going to let something happen to his Lord. Nobody else did it. Peter did it. Peter is courageous. After that arrest, after Jesus' arrest, everybody ran. Peter didn't run. Peter followed. The soldiers are taking Jesus to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. The soldiers are taking him to Caiaphas' house. Peter followed the soldiers and followed uh, Jesus. And he's kind of lurking in the woods a little bit, watching, seeing what is going on. And he knew now, just like us, because we, we waver on stuff and sometimes fear creeps in. And for Peter that night, a little fear kind of crept in and he, he escaped. But everybody else had run. Peter followed kind of in the background. So he's courageous. He's bold. He's a leader. There's another side to him as well, though. Honestly, he could be super irresponsible. He could be super um, impulsive. In Mark chapter 14... Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him kind of among the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he takes them there so he can pray. He, Jesus, can pray. So they can keep watch. Peter couldn't even stay awake an hour. Peter could be obstinate. He could be sarcastic. Are you seeing a little bit of yourself in all of these kind of traits? He could be sarcastic. Luke chapter 5, Jesus is on the, the deck of Peter's boat. Sea of Galilee, and he's, Jesus is up there, and he's teaching a bunch of folks, and he finishes teaching. He tells Peter to, to go out in deeper water, lower the nets, and, and we'll catch some fish. Now, what was Peter's vocation? He's a fisherman. What was his daddy's vocation? I would imagine granddaddy was a fisherman, too. Peter knew how to fish. Peter knew. He'd been, Jesus tells him to take the boat out there, drop the nets. Peter's like, we've been fishing all night. We ain't caught a thing. Shot a goose egg. So he responds. He knew that when Jesus said to go out there and throw the nets out. But so he responds to the king of the universe with total sarcasm. If you look at, at Luke chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Master, we toiled all night. We caught nothing. Dude, we've been fishing all night long. He's like, 
Jesus, you ain't a fisherman like I get it, but we've been doing this our whole lives, and we've been out there doing it all night long, and we didn't catch a thing, but at your word, we'll go do it. It's total sarcasm that he responded to the creator of the universe with. And y'all, I said a minute ago that he was courageous, that he was loyal, but he could also be painfully disloyal. You think about it, right on the heels of really of courageously kind of following the, the, uh, the soldiers in Jesus as they head to the high priest's house, Peter denies the Lord. Shamefully, he did it two more times. And that last time he did it, that's when the rooster crowed, right? And Luke chapter 22 and verse 61 says, and the Lord, and now who wrote Luke? Luke wrote Luke. Who wrote John? John wrote John. Okay. Luke, I'm a master at stating the obvious. Luke writes in verse 20, uh, 61 of, verse, of chapter 22, he says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. If you think about it, he's lurking in that courtyard, kind of behind a tree. I want you to picture this. He can see Jesus, and Jesus can see him, denies him again, and you can almost imagine Jesus' eyes cut and look at Peter as the rooster crows and and Peter denies him for the third time. And Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Luke uses the very same word for looked as John did in chapter 1 in verse 42. So Jesus gazed into Peter's heart as he's being arrested. Gazed into his heart and soul, but this time there was conviction in it, and there was compassion in it, and there was pity in it. Because Peter was, they were best buds. They were best friends. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, Peter is portrayed in the most human way. He is one of us. He's just like we are. With all the bumps and bruises and scratches and, and scars that are so visible for the world to see because the Gospels are so authentic and so real. They don't paint some wonderful picture of the men and women that, that the gospel writers write about. They paint a true, authentic, genuine picture of humanity. And Peter's just like me and you. And I believe that everything that made Peter Peter is what made Peter so attractive to Jesus. They were the closest of friends. That friendship started on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus knew the godly leader that Peter would end up becoming. He knew even though Peter smelled like a catfish or a sardine or something that, that that guy would end up being the rock that would preach the words in Acts chapter 2. Y'all, it's been a few months since we were in Acts 2, but write that down. Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 14. Greatest message in all of the Bible outside of the words of Christ himself is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. That sermon would launch Christ's church. When, Jesus, when Peter denies Jesus and Jesus gazes into Peter's heart and soul, he knew that sermon was coming six or seven weeks later. Think about that. Peter denies him. Peter denies him. Peter denies him. Rooster crows. Jesus looks at him, and Peter is full of shame. And, G and the eyes are conveying, don't be ashamed because the sun's going to come up tomorrow. And the sun's going to come up three days later on Sunday morning. 
And Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. So he knew Peter in a way that nobody else could possibly know him. He saw Peter's birth in Galilee, Peter's death in Rome, and all the stuff that happened in the middle of that. And Peter knew Jesus too. From the time Jesus called him uh, away from catching the fish, he and uh, Jesus and Peter were almost inseparable. Every single time in the Gospels where Jesus allows only two or three men to be with him for something, Peter's one of them. Every time. Jesus is, uh, uh, heals Peter's mom-in-law in Peter's house. In Matthew 16, Peter came to the, to the profoundest of conclusions about who Jesus is. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, who do people say that to him? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then five minutes later, Jesus is explaining that he's, he's, the, the scriptures say, say that he turned his face towards the cross. And so he's letting his guys know five minutes after Peter says this that uh, he, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to get arrested. He's going to get beaten. He's going to get nailed up to a, to a tree. And Peter jumps up and starts screaming, you know, not on my watch. That's not going to happen. Not on my watch. It's, it's not going to happen. Because Peter's image of of who Messiah is, and that image uh, that he has of who Messiah is is coming from his dad, it's coming from his granddad, it's coming from his great-granddad. That image of who Messiah is is passed down through the generations, and that image is not matching what Jesus is telling him. Jesus is telling him he's going to get beaten up and murdered, and Peter's image is that, no, 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 no. Braveheart, baby, you're going to come riding on a horse and a sword, and we're going to kick Rome's tail out of Israel. So, what Jesus is saying and what Peter has in his mind about Messiah, they're not jiving. Even though Jesus for three years is pouring into them and telling them what is going to happen. Peter trusted and then he didn't trust. P Peter, Peter believed and then Peter doesn't believe. Y'all, every one of us do that. Every put me in the front of the line. Like I will have seasons of such crazy, strong, fervent trust and then something will happen and it will start to waver. I mean, Paul said it, I believe and I don't believe. I trust and I don't trust. He's just, that's, we all go through that stuff. And in this moment, when Jesus is telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me, and Peter jumps up and says, not on my watch, not going to happen. What does Jesus do? He rebukes him tells strong rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. But Sunday's coming, y'all. And, and, and so he's crucified, and then he's resurrected. And you know, at his crucifixion, believe it or not, none of his little band of merry men are present at the crucifixion, other than maybe John. They kind of hit the road. They're conspicuously absent. And so Jesus is hung on that tree, and then he's put in a tomb, and he's anointed with spices by the women. And the women uh, leave the tomb, and then when they return, they find that tomb empty. And they're told, Mark chapter 16, they're told to go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter runs to the tomb 
They're like, he's gone. He's gone. And Peter runs to the tomb. And John tells us that he's faster than Peter. But Peter, Peter runs to the tomb and he finds the tomb empty. And what does he do? He just goes home. He goes fishing, actually. So the t- all that excitement and he just turns and he goes home. Because he doesn't see Jesus. He just sees the empty tomb. But after he sees him, John, the, the, the apostle John records this in John 21. After the resurrection and Jesus see, or Peter sees Jesus and they have a conversation, Peter is commissioned by Jesus as the leader of the early church. You see it in John chapter 21. Gives him his marching orders. And Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah. Well, then feed my lambs. And Jesus said, no, 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 do you, do you really love me? He said, I, I said, I do. He says, then tend my sheep. And then again, Jesus says, I'm asking you, bro, do you really, really love me? Peter says, you know it all. You know that I do. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. He said, I've been pouring into you for three years, shepherding you so that you can shepherd the church. I've been shepherding and teaching and pouring in and discipling you so that you can shepherd all of the sheep that are coming in several weeks. So he commissions Peter as the leader of the church. And so what we we just saw, Peter before Jesus and then kind of Peter after Jesus. And after Jesus, we see this man who is discerning and he's confident and he's faithful and he's He's determined and he's evangelistic and he's generous and he's compassionate and he's totally filled with the Holy Spirit. And woven through everything that is, that, that is Peter is Christ-like concern. There's Christ-like concern. The crux of it all for Peter is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. His greatest desire, as should be ours, is that the world would come to a a saving knowledge of the Jesus that gazed into his heart and into his soul on the shores of Galilee, in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house on the night that Jesus is arrested. The Jesus whose first words to Peter, anybody know what Jesus' first words to Peter were? Follow me. Follow me. Y'all, that's what he wants us to do. Follow him. For Peter, it was, no, it was all Jesus. And so I believe that Peter gives us this, in the, in the Gospels and in Acts, this really good image of how to do the Christian life, how to walk the Christian walk. Let me say it to you this way. I believe we get both sides of that coin from Peter's life. We almost kind of get uh, maybe almost not what, what not to do in the Gospels and what to do in the book of Acts. And so last week, we finished in, in verse 31 of chapter 9 of Acts. We finished last week with Paul on a boat. If you remember, Paul's on a boat. He's headed for Tarsus in uh, Cilicia. And, and we all know, well, maybe we all know that, that Paul is considered the apostle to the Gentiles. You know, you got, what's a Gentile? Somebody's not Jewish. So you had Jews and you had Gentiles. And Paul is considered the apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul's life dominates the latter half of the book of Acts. But for now, Paul is headed off back home in Tarsus, where where he's from, 
And Peter's life dominates the book of Acts from this point till about the end of chapter 12. And the truth is, it's really not Paul that opened the door to the Gentiles. It's really Peter. And I want you to remember Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Just after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two verses later, verse 18 and 19. says, and I tell you, this is Jesus talking, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, it's a play on words, obviously, but what's the rock? The rock is the confession. The rock is you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you, the, I will give you Peter, in that context, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He says, Peter, you are the guy that is going to unlock the doors as the church expands wider and broader. That's what he's saying to him in Matthew 16. Peter was preaching in Jerusalem at Pentecost. I told you, Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 14. Peter was there in Samaria as the church began to, as the believers began to scatter. Peter was there in Samaria. What's Peter preaching? Jesus, 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 Jesus in Samaria. And y'all will see in chapter 10 in a few weeks, it's Peter that lays hands on Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Jew or a Gentile? A Gentile. And it's Peter that lays hands on him. And then, yeah, we'll see Paul jump back into the, to the narrative in Acts in chapter 13 or so. And, and, and he begins the ministry and the follow-up and the building of the church that Peter really initiated. So, verse 32. Acts 9, verse 32. And y'all, I hope and I pray that we're all going to see some, some indicators this week and, and, and next week, well, really the week after because we're doing something else next week, but that we see some indicators of a really rocking, effective, efficient, God-honoring personal ministry. And all of us need to have personal ministries, personal ministries in the lives of men, personal ministries in the lives of women, personal ministries in, in the lives of students, personal ministries in the lives of, of kids, one-on-ones with the people in, in our sphere. And I want to shine a light, a little bit of a light on several of these keys or several of these indicators. The first one is super simple. It's just being involved. Being involved. Peter has a rocking personal ministry because he was involved. He was involved. Look at verse 32. It says, now as Peter went here and there. That's an idiom in that culture. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Here and there, ESV, English Standard Version, says here and there. The New King James says he went through all parts of the country. Here's what we know. And I love this. He's here and there. He's all over the place. He's in the, the middle of it all. He's active. He's taken advantage of every opportunity of a path crossing. It's what Jason and Leah are going to do when they go to Tennessee. They're jumping. They're going up there, and they're planting a homeless ministry. And their lives and the lives of lost people are going to cross. And that's an opportunity for Jason and Leah. For Jesus is the opportunity. 
And so Peter is all over the place, and he's in the thick of things, and he's taking advantage of all. He's involved. He's involved. And the truth is, almost all of the apostles at this time, they're kind of moving and shaking, and they're out there, and they're sharing Jesus, and they're sharing their Jesus story, and they're being fruitful. And, y'all, there's a principle in that, and it's this. People that are already involved in what God is doing are usually the ones that God uses for fruitful ministries. People that are already involved in in the midst of God's activity are usually the ones that end up being involved in ministries that bear fruit. It seems like that it's easier for God to steer and to direct and to guide when he's got a job to do. It's just easier to steer and guide and direct people that are already moving, heading somewhere. God's got a job to do. He doesn't walk over to some dusty shelf and some lazy, doing-nothing, dilapidated, feeble old Christian and say, think I'll use you to get done some stuff. That just doesn't seem like it's the way that it tends to work. And all this is a life principle as well. Like it totally is a life principle. I used to tell real estate agents all the time when I was training them that busy agents become busier agents because they're, 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 they're in the flow of business. They're in the flow of where the action is and, and what's going on. Truth is, nobody wants to list their house for sale with somebody that ain't listing houses for sale, right? You don't want to go to a doctor that has no patients. Like when I had surgery almost five years ago, the doctor that did my surgery had done 4,400 of them. I think I want him to do it. Because he's prob- maybe he messed up on some of the other 4,400, but he's probably got it down by now. Right? You want to you do business with people that are doing business. It just makes sense. And y'all, look, ministry is the same way. It's exactly the same way. If you ever want to be rocking and rolling in the ministry of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to get in the middle of what God is doing. And you start, where are you going to start? You're going to start where you're at. And there's lots of things that, that, that are needed. Praying, teaching, discipling, serving, ministering to the needs of other people. For sure, using your gifts, whatever gifts God has given you. And you know, as we, you and me, as we're in, in the middle of, uh, of God's movement, of God's activity... He'll cross your path with ministries and people and opportunities. He will. I have seen it a billion times. That's what he does. I don't know if I told you all this or not. Two weeks ago, uh, I had lunch with a guy who is uh, the director of crew uh, crew military, Campus Crusades for Christ Military. He and his wife are full-time missionaries on Fort Benning. Busy dude. I'm kind of busy. Our paths crossed. Somebody in our church put us together, and we had lunch together. And I may have said this before, and if I did, forgive me. It's redundant. But crew military at Fort Benning is seeing somewhere since March of last year between 50 and 100 soldiers, men and women, giving their lives to Christ every week. Y'all, that is a staggering number, 50 to 100 Every week. I almost fell out of my chair when he told me that. Well, they can't handle the discipleship component of it. It's too much. Like you're talking about thousands of people. And and guess what happens? I asked him. 
I said, what percentage of them stay here at Fort Benning? He says, almost none. I said, so what you're telling me is you got thousands of guys and, and ladies coming in, being trained for 15 to 22 weeks, 50 or 100 of them getting saved every week, and then the federal government is paying to send them out on a mission trip. He said, that's the way we look at it. I said, that's the way I look at it. Well, I said, oh, my gosh, what are you doing with them? How are you discipling them? He said, we're struggling because we don't have enough people. Well, it wasn't random chance that he and I are eating at Guadalajara two weeks ago. Like, God did that. God ordained that to happen. Well, we're going to help disciple those folks. We don't have enough people to do it either, but one person at a time. And so I'm going to be asking y'all if you have interest in doing that, particularly if you are active duty military or retired, because your trust level just went up to get in front of those folks and disciple them, please come see me. Well, that, y'all, that's God doing that, right? Back to verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So Peter gets to this little group of believers, and here's a shocker, in a predominantly Gentile community in Lydda. It was called Lod in the Old Testament. It's actually called Lod today. It's about 15 kilometers southeast of Tel Aviv and about 40 northwest of Jerusalem. In fact, Ben-Gurion Airport is in this city today. It's an ancient city and it's strategically located. Look at God's sovereignty in this. This city is strategically located on a very traveled trade route from, this is North Africa if y'all didn't know that. Between North Africa going up into ancient uh, land of Babylon, it's on that trade route, heavily traveled trade route. Was it a shocker that God would explode some believers on a trade route that's heavily traveled? That's the way he does stuff because those people are going up into Asia on that route and down into Africa. Well, let's get the gospel down into Africa and let's get it up into Asia. Think I'll use Lod. Oh, and then we're going to put an airport there 2,000 years later. Y'all, that's just the way God does stuff. It just is. So Peter is available, and Peter is moving, and he's involved, and he's in Lydda doing the Lord's work, and you do realize that you've got to be involved. You know why you've got to be involved? You've got to be involved because if you're, if you're not, you're not going to be ready when God wants to use you because he's not going over to the dusty shelf. Right? you got to be involved so that when he, when he wants to use you for something, you're ready to be used. Verse 33 says, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Been in his bed, can't move, paralyzed for eight years. Really, really sick, and everybody knew that he was really sick, and everybody knew that he was really paralyzed. And I remember reading this 20 years ago for the first time. I remember reading this little passage. And this is a little, man, this ain't four or five verses. But I remember reading it, and as soon as I read verse 33, Peter finds this man, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who are paralyzed. I thought, something's fixing to happen. My wife tells me I'm not supposed to use the word fixing. We live in Georgia. Something was fixing to happen. I knew some, God was fixing to do something. This man wasn't staying paralyzed. So Luke writes this. There's fixing to be a miracle. Bottom line, is there fixing to be a miracle? Because Peter is available and Peter is involved and Peter is moving and stuff. 
for sure. What happens? Peter's involved and God presents this incredible ministry opportunity. Is it a ministry opportunity for Peter to put a notch in his belt or something? No, it's not. God is about to do something. And then you see, I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. It's not going to be on the screen. But if you look in your worship guide down to verse 35, you'll see what happens. All these people turn to the Lord. Peter's available. Peter's involved. Peter's moving here and there. And ultimately, all these people turn to the Lord. So here's a guy who takes his personal ministry to one man and literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people are affected by it. You just don't know what God is going to do. You just don't. One by one by one by one and boom, 100,000 people. You never know. So get in the thick of things and get involved in what God is doing. Just be involved. You'll be ready when he calls on you. And then Peter has a rocking personal ministry because he was Jesus exalting. Everything for Peter points to Jesus. Everything. Y'all, any kind of ministry that is going to be fruitful, that's going to have any kind of positive effect on the lives of people is going to be one that lifts up only one name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, period. Write that down. If there's going to be any fruit, it's going to be because that ministry, and it could be a church, it could be a, a, a parachurch ministry, crew or whatever, it's because it is lifting up the name of Christ. So when Peter gets to lit, it goes to this dude's bedroom and said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And what did he do? And immediately he rose and made his bed. And a couple things here, a couple of words, that word rise. Rise. Peter tells him, rise, get up. So yes, miracles, for sure. And yes, we see a man's faith and a man's trust. Because lightning doesn't just strike this dude and then knock him upright up out of the bed. He's got to assert his free will and respond to what Peter said, and he does. He gets up. Got to get up. So rise, Peter says. Another word, immediately. Great word in the book of Acts. You see it 14 or 15 times. Peter's doing stuff immediately. Paul is doing stuff immediately. Aeneas immediately gets up. He doesn't pray or fast about it, and there's Times to pray and fast about stuff. He doesn't pray and fast about it. He doesn't take out a piece of paper and write the pros and the cons. He listens, he believes, he obeys, and he gets up immediately. And it is crazy interesting to me, at least, and I hope to you, that Luke tells us that Peter told this guy to make up his bed. And the guy made up the bed. I think I was talking to our Wednesday or Thursday Bible study about this because I just find it cool. Well, why you reckon he did that? Like, who cares? Like, totally, who cares about, like, is this some, is this some principle that travels down through time to me and you here in 2022 that all Christ followers for all time in all cultures need to be making up their beds? Well, call me lost. Because I, I I'm not a bed maker upper person. How many of you men made up the bed? Don't call me sexist. How many of you men made up the bed this morning? I thought. Are you raising your hand? 
Okay. That would, that would be none. Honestly, I'm scared to make the bed up because I'm petrified that I'll put one of the 27 little decorative pillows in the wrong place. Right? I ain't making no bed up. So what is all this bed making up stuff about? Because you, you see it in the text. You see it. Oh, you don't see it. Look at it and you'll see it. Anyway, what's all this bed making stuff? That word make, is it up there now? Okay. Yeah, that word make that you see and make your bed. You don't care about this and I don't really either, but it is in the aorist imperative tense. And, 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 and you don't care about that. I don't really care about that either. But it's cool because that, that, what, that really, uh, what that really means is that when Peter says, make your bed, well, do I have to make it again and again? Do I have to make it up tomorrow? No, you make your bed up once and for all and it's over with. You'll never have to do it again ever because you ain't never going to be paralyzed again. Every single time Jesus Christ brings healing into a person's life, it is complete, absolute, never have to do it again. It's done and over with healing. You are healed, period. It's over with. You can make the bed up for good. If he heals an addiction, make your bed up. If he heals a sickness, make your bed up. If he heals a relationship that's broken, if he heals the relationship, go make the bed up because his healing is done and over with and it will never have to be done again. Do you all understand that? There is such joy that you can have in that. You don't, it's just the same kind of principle. You drag all the junk in your life up to the cross and you leave it there. Don't leave it. Don't drag it back up again. When something is hurting you, maybe it's something you did, maybe it's a sin that's been pervasive in your life, I don't care what it is. There's nothing too big for God, right? There's nothing too big for Jesus to, to forgive. You just ain't that important, I guess. I don't, or you are that important. Your sin is just not greater than his grace. So when you drag it up to the cross and you leave it there, leave it there. Because when he heals, he heals completely holy, and you don't ever have to be healed of that again. You jiving with me? All right, that's, that's the make your bed up stuff. And you may think I skipped a little bit of that first part of this verse, which I did, and there was a reason for a little dramatic tension, I guess. But it's a huge issue. The verse says, Jesus Christ heals you. That's powerful for what it says, but it's also powerful for what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Dr. Oz heals you. It doesn't say Dr. Fauci heals you. It doesn't even say that Peter heals you, right? It says that the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe, is the one that heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. That is a powerful, powerful statement. Peter disavows any claim to the power. It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. Can, can you see what he's saying? It's not like Peter walks in and says to Aeneas, the great and powerful Peter is here to heal you. Who is Peter there to exalt? Jesus. Who is he there to bring glory to? Jesus. Who is he there to praise and to honor and lift up? Jesus. If a ministry, any ministry, big ministry, little bitty ministry, mega church, church of three people, parachurch organization, I don't care what it is, 
if any ministry is set up to exalt anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ is failing. It is going to fail. Destined to fail. And usually when there's a failure, it is because that ministry, big or small, was set up to exalt the leader or the pastor or the worship leader almost every time. Who is it pointing to? Is it pointing to the dude on the stage or is it pointing up? If it's pointing to the dude on the stage, it's destined to fail. It's like when this moment comes that you start to think that it's all about your smarts or it's all about your skills or it's all about your abilities or your gifts or that you can do it all. I had a friend, this is several months ago, but he said we had this, he doesn't live in Columbus, uh, uh, he's in ministry. He said we had this thing and I saved six people. And it just came out of his mouth. And I said, I'm like, and I could almost feel my wife in my ear saying, calm down, like calm down. But I just said, oh, really? He said, yeah, man, it was cool, six people. I said, you saved them. I said, I didn't know I could talk to God on the telephone. Like, it was crazy. Like, who's it pointing to? And I could talk to him that way because he's a friend of mine. But who's it pointing to? If it's pointing to the guy on the stage, if it's pointing to the guy in the, in the executive office somewhere, it's destined to fail because it is not of God. It's not of God's doing. And so when, if it does that, if, if you start to think like it's about my skill and my ability and my giftedness, it's at that moment that you have disqualified yourself from fruit and from fruitfulness. That's a strong statement, but that's the truth. That is the truth. And we've all seen that. Turn the TV on, man. Like open up your news feed. We see it all the time. And me and you, and put, I'm in the front of the line, man. We can be so dumb sometimes because we've got to constantly be reminded that, that our pride and our so-called abilities can get all up in the way of what God is doing. Whatever, whatever it is that's, that's being done for his glory is being done by him. Realistically, whatever he's getting done is probably, in, like in any ministry that I'm involved in, is probably despite my messed upness. Like despite my sinfulness, despite my nature, he's getting it done anyway. And I'm just thankful I get to maybe have some little role, feel privileged to have some little role in that. Peter writes about this probably 30 years later. 1 Peter 4.11, he says this. He says, whoever speaks, speak as one the oracles of God, not the oracles of Peter. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, not his own strength, not his own smarts, not his own power or might, he says, serve as one who's strengthened by the Lord in order that in everything who, who may be glorified, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To who belongs the glory, does Peter say? To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. And it can be a battle because you can see some fruit. 
And you can see some people coming to know Christ. And you can see some people who are growing in their, in their walk and they're serving the Lord. And you can see some hungry people getting fed. And you can see a, the, the, the foster kid who's been sleeping on the floor. Somebody in a ministry provided them a bed and they got a place to sleep. And you're seeing all that stuff and you start to think that you did that in your own flesh and in your own strength. Well, here's the deal. A servant of the Lord who's, who is rocking down the road and rolling in in, 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 in the Lord's work, only wants to lift up the name of Christ. Peter didn't want to lift up Peter. Peter said, Jesus heals you. Like, Lord, if I stand, I'm just going to say this, like, I don't want to lift up Ed. If you ever notice me doing something that is lifting up Ed, drop kick me off the stage. Like, that's not, it can't be that way. Richard doesn't want to lift up Richard. Ed don't want to lift up Ed. Any ministry leader in our church family, we don't want to lift up ourselves or our names or even the name of the ministry. It is the name of Jesus that needs to be lifted up. Like whatever effectiveness, and it's totally a blessing. It's like it's, it's despite my dumbness or something. I don't know. But whatever effectiveness that I can personally have as an evangelist or as a preacher or as a teacher, it is only because it is and always will be about lifting up and exalting the name of Jesus. And if you ever see it not doing that, somebody's got to punch me in the face. Like I'm serious about, I'm probably not serious about punching me in the face, but somebody needs to say something. Like we need to be close enough that if I get derailed and y'all need to love me enough and I need to love y'all enough that you can say, you went down a wrong rabbit trail or something. Verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Where's, what is Sharon? It's not Sharon. It's Sharon. It's a valley from Joppa north up to Mount Carmel. Several, several miles long. So what Luke is saying is that because of Jesus' healing of this guy, the gospel just explodes in Lydda and it ran like crazy north. Notice this. Does it say, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to Peter? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say they saw him and they all turned towards Ed? No. No, they all turned, they saw this and they all turned toward the, towards the Lord. Jesus is lifted up. We say it in this, this in M2540 in the homeless ministry, we say it all the time. All the time. It's not about the food. It's about Jesus. We say it every Monday night, the volunteers. It's not about the, the tent. It's about the food. It's not about the sleeping bag. It's about the food. It's not about the toothbrush. Did I say it's about the food? It's Sorry. It's about Jesus. I caught myself. It's not about the toothbrush. It's about Jesus. It's not about the toilet tissue. It's about Jesus. Now, do they need food? And do they need a tent? And do they need toilet tissue? And do they need all the, the stuff? Of course they do. Like, of course they do. But it's not about that stuff. It's about Jesus. That's why we're sharing the gospel out there on the streets five or six times every Monday night. That's why there's a devotion. That's why the hugs and everything is provided in the name of Jesus because He is lifted up. So if you want to have an effective personal ministry, you want to make a difference in the lives 
of people. You want to make a difference in the forevers of people. You want to be able to make a difference in a, in a, in a family tree changing. You know, if you were here Thursday night when Travis and Sonia Todd spoke, missionaries in East Asia for 22 years, they showed a little video. It like was like two or three minutes long. And it was, uh, 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 I don't know how, I'm going to guess the, the woman was 30 years old probably from China. A crew volunteer spent five minutes with her, led her to Christ. She led her mom and her daddy and all kind of other people. And what I'm telling you is a family tree just changed. Five minutes. Five minutes. And the truth is, most of the time, we don't ever get to know what happened through that. But what we know is we're told to do that. We're told to be obedient. Personal ministry. Be involved. Get involved and then lift up the name of Christ. Let everything point to Him. Let everything bring Him glory. Let everything bring Him honor. Let everything bring Him praise. Everything bring Him praise. The Holy Spirit will work through you. Oh my gosh, He will. He will give you the right words to say. He will go before you to prepare the heart and the mind of the person that He crosses your path with. Don't you know that if He crosses your path with somebody, that He's going to prepare the way? Don't you know He's going to prepare that person's mind and heart to hear whatever it is that He gets you to say to them? Trust Him. Get involved. It may be in a kid's ministry next door. And you're just loving on a, a, a third grade little kid in the name of the Lord. And it may be 30 years later that kid comes to Christ. It may be 30 minutes later. Just be involved and be available for Him to use you. I hope that made sense. Um, you know, Peter, Paul, really all of the guys, their heart is to see people come to Christ. That's why we exist as a church. Honestly, that's why I feel like I was born to play some sort of a role in that. Um, Hard-headed, and it took a long time to, to listen. But I'm telling you today as we sit here, if you don't know him, man, don't go to sleep tonight without considering that offer. I would love for you to get to, 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 to say yes to his offer right now. But for heaven's sake, man, don't go to sleep tonight without saying, without, without saying, I'm going to say without saying yes. But don't cop out and give, a no, and give no answer because no answer is a no. We don't know what tomorrow's holding. And I'm not trying to scare you into heaven because I don't think it works. I think the eyes of Christ that gazed into Peter's heart you know, I would say, if you don't know him, close your eyes right now and just look at, think about that image. And when I say leave it at the cross, leave it at the cross. The Lord's not dragging it back up. It's outside of his nature. So if you want to be forgiven, you want to make the bed up and never have to make it up again, accept him, say yes to that offer. Here's all it looks like. If y'all would close your eyes and I want to go through this and then I want to pray. Lord, I, if you want this today, if you don't know him and you want this today, 
just kind of say this to yourself or with me. Come up to the cross if you want to. Lord, I'm turning away from my sin. I'm doing whatever I can do to turn away from my sin. And Lord, I'm not stopping there. I want to turn towards you. So I'm turning away from it and I'm turning towards you. And Lord, today is the day that I do believe that you died on the cross. I do believe that you paid a debt that was my debt to pay because I acknowledge today that I am a sinner and I am in need of being saved. And Lord, I believe that you took care of that and I believe that you walked out of that grave alive. Lord, save me. Save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that and you meant that and it was real, it's not those words that save you. It's the Messiah that saves you. The words allow you to understand it. So if you said that today, you're going to sleep found tonight. What a glorious thing that is. But we've got people on our prayer team that are going to be back in that corner. I'm going to be out there by the couches, and I would love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you, even if you didn't get saved today. If this is your first or second time or we've never had a conversation, my wife and I will be out there. I would love to talk to you. Let me pray one more time and turn it over to the worship team. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be involved. Lord, it is a privilege to be able to be involved. When in reality, Lord, every one of us deserve deserve death. But you loved us enough to die for us. And you loved us enough to give us an opportunity to serve you. And Lord, my prayer is that we, all of us, together would lock arms and be involved. Together that all of us would exalt your name and not our name. Your name and not the name of this church. Your name and not the name of any ministry that we may be involved in. Your name. Lord, let us be like Peter and like Paul and your first guys. And let it be all about you and not us. And Lord, we are madly in love with you. Jesus' name, amen.